You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So I don't have the time to do what I want to do, but we'll find the time to do something we can do. But we got to unpack this thing in a way that makes sense. Raise your hand if you were taught manners growing up. All right, for those of you rude people who were not, <laughs> raise your hand if growing up you were taught yes ma'am and no sir as a part of the manners. Raise your hand in all sincerity if you weren't taught that. Okay, look, that's literally, it's like that in the first gathering, half the room. For those of you, why do you think that's true? Why do you think those who lived up more of the north, um, <laughs> no, I'm serious, that's what it is. Like, I'm not making a statement, but y'all, a bunch of antagonizing people trying to antagonize things. Why is, it, um, why is it you think that those who were raised in the North um, were not raised to be as uh, well-mannered as those in the South? See what I just did there? Now I just did it. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what's happening there. I'll figure it out. It happened, this happened last time. So why is that? What's the difference? Go ahead, Bree. Okay. 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 Layers. Okay. The like, that's my experience. No, no, that's, 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 very, that's your experience. Anybody have any thoughts? Jamie? I think growing up in the South, it was a show. As I've gotten older, it was a show. Okay. And that's what I saw a lot in my faith community. Was okay. that show piece of it. Okay. Anybody else? I think it's a cultural thing. Okay. Yeah. It really just comes down to... Oh, go ahead. Okay, so there's cultural, there's generational, there's image, there's religion. Um, in, in our family, it was really, like, depending on what, you know, like, if you're talking to someone who's older than you and they are in a uh, position of respect and they say no sir or no ma'am, um, or if you just want to be absurdly polite, you could use that. Um, <laughs> I like it. In yeah. some cases, it was just, you know, if you're on friendly terms, then you can be casual. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I think all of those are right. But here's the thing. Raise your hand if you were taught that someone who did not have manners, we had words for them. What were those words? Rude. Rude. What other words? Disrespectful. So see, what we do is we take these cultural norms, these social conventions. Everybody say social convention. What society convenes as the way of being in society. It's also called a social construct or social construction. Everybody say social construction. It's what society constructs as the way by which we be society. Right? This is how you be in the world. And when you are being this way, you do these things. And this doing is evidence of your appropriate being. Does that make sense? You with me? Come on, I need some nonverbals because we're going to get deep here in a minute. So when it comes to manners, we would ha- what we do is we take these social conventions and we attach moral values to them. You see? So now something that Fergie just wasn't raised to do, when she moves down to the south into our territory, if she's little and she doesn't say it, we call her rude. And then when it's me and I go up somewhere and I go into an environment and I say ma'am in certain areas, in certain areas of the U.S., that's actually rude. Now, I'm not going to get into the etymology or to the history of where manners come from, but the fact is, some of us just were born into a, mom- into a system, everybody say system, 
where these values were instilled upon us, sometimes explicitly means sometimes stated, and sometimes implicitly, which means sometimes just learned and known and experienced. You with me? And then we grow up, or maybe we don't, maybe we stay the same where we are, and then we grow Either way, we then attach moral values to them. You see what I'm saying? We make cultural social conventions and social constructs lines of morality and inclusion. Well, that's not new. As our God wants to transform us, we have to start, we have to be intelligent people. And by intelligent people, I don't mean degree people. But let me not even say intelligent. Here's what I tell my son all the time, and you can ask him. If you ask Ian, Ian, what does your dad say he wants you to be more than anything else? Ian will say he wants me to be a thoughtful man. I, don't, I told Ian, we don't need any more stronger men. We have enough strong men. We don't need any more strong men. I need to be a thoughtful man. Amen. Yeah, come yeah. On now. We need to be thoughtful in our faith. Because our inability or our lack of seeing or our lack of acknowledging how social conventions and social constructions form us, keep us from naming things that we should name, and sometimes pushes us to name things as something we should not name it as. Does that make sense? And so as our triune God wants to transform us, we have to reckon with the fact that society also wants to form us. Matter of fact, it was meant to be that way, which is why the Apostle Paul said, good companionships corrupt what? That's not on the screen. Those are two pictures of children. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians said, good companionship corrupts what? Or, I'm sorry, bad companionship corrupts what? Good habits. So Paul knew that, when, that the companionships that we hold, whether it's one or two or a system of companionship, that it can corrupt the goodness of who we are. We become, listen to me, we become a part of what we are around, whether it is moral or immoral. So yes, beware of the company you keep. But beware of the way social constructs are forming your lens through which you see the world and through which you see another. Because if a social construct tells you that you have the authority somehow, even in the name of your religion, to mar the image of God in another, that is not of God. No matter how many people like me stand up here and say it is. You don't see that in Jesus. Because being made in eternal, in the image of the eternal God means to be made in the image of the eternal God for love, for relationship, for inclusion, for participation, for welcome. Amen. And if God would welcome anybody into God's own life, all I recognize at that point is I got to do whatever is keeping people from being welcomed into mine. I got to deal with that. Right. A lot of that is social conventions. Amen. So here in this picture, you're going to see two boys. The boy to the right of the picture, to your right, is a boy from the Victorian era, photographed in 1870. To the boy to the left, does anybody know who that is? Who is it? FDR. It's FDR. It's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, did somebody say me? Oh, uh, y'all got jokes. Oh, I see. See what happens when you open the floor on a Sunday? Everybody wants to preach. Everybody got jokes. <laughs> you see little FDR in his shoulder-length hair, wearing his pleated skirt, covering his legs, holding his hat with that little feather, that, 
that little feather there and his little shoes, taking his picture. Did you know that social convention of 1884, social convention of this era of the American life said that boys must wear dresses until they're age six and it's until they're age six that they cannot have their hair cut and that they should no longer wear dresses? Did you know that it was a cultural norm, a social conviction, a social convention, I'm sorry, a social construction that boys wear dresses until the age of six? But now if we saw a boy looking like FDR, we'd have opinions about that, wouldn't we? We'd have thoughts. Might even, in the name of our religion, make some moral judgment. Especially in the current cultural climate. We have things to say because we're Christians. And yet, different time, different place, different era, different convention. See, we don't often reckon with how the conventions of any era, any culture, form morality, so we think. That allows us to put ourselves in the seat of judging another. To not wear that would have betrayed social conventions and would have made them odd. In the same way that the sisters in the room, not too long ago, shouldn't be wearing what? Yeah, notice it was almost all the women who said that. And we had moral convictions behind that. And dare I say, and God knows if you listen to enough religious trauma and hurt and nonsense out there, you'll hear we have religious convictions for that. And we made that a thing. And those social conventions that we held as convictions and we put out there, we harmed others. We fail to see how social constructs form our lens the way in which we see others. And when it's baptized in Christian tenets, notice I keep saying tenets and beliefs. Notice I'm not saying Christ. That we then somehow think we have permission to make judgments and make a moral call and call it something and do it in such a way that it excludes people from being welcomed into the household of God, of which we are all made children, not because we had social conventions, right? but simply because we trusted the only one who could liberate us. It's like the color pink. At what point did the color pink wake up one day and decide to get a voice and say, hey, y'all, I think I'm going to be a girl's color. (laughs) And then the color blue woke up and said, hey, glad you said that, because I think I just want to be a boy's color. But did you know that in the early 1900s, pink was exclusively a boy's color? As a matter of fact, in the early 1900s, pink was considered a color of strength. Own that. But it wasn't until consumerism, it wasn't until capitalism, it wasn't until Sears Roebuck, until other, other children department stores decided that pink looked better on girls and started marketing pink as girls. And so as the cultural norm began to change, Time Magazine in 1927 decided to do a little research on various stores to see how the shift was taking place. And now, all of a sudden, living in our culture, if you're a boy or a man and you wear pink, we've got opinions, especially in the 1980s. We thought lots of things about Don Johnson, didn't we, people? Miami Vice, anybody? Right? I know some of y'all are like, yes, yes, Lord. Don Johnson in, in Miami Vice, yes, right? Like, like that's the thing. Like we have we have these thoughts, you know? We have these thoughts. We have these social conventions that we apply onto other people's bodies. 
And we make, we make decisions which then create, out of our beliefs, which then create lines of exclusion or inclusion. And what we don't realize we're doing is that we are damaging the image of God in ourselves and in others. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Is this all just a behavioral problem? Well, what I would suggest to you is that it's not all a behavioral problem. There is something called a theology of social evil in the world. Everybody say theology of social evil. Okay, so here's what I'm going to have to tell you. There's a million scriptures that I don't have time to go through with you. They're all in your church app. I will give you my notes. I will meet you for coffee. We'll do whatever it takes because I teach this in this church. I used to teach this once a year, every year, but I have it in four. And I want to make sure that we understand the theology of social evil to see how these social constructs have actual, have power. They have power over us. Because a lot of us think, well, I'll make my own decisions. Yeah, but you thought pink was a girl's color, dude. Seriously, that's how we roll with it. But we think we made those decisions. Society forms us. We inherit the society we're in. I don't ever remember a national address coming from the president announcing that pink is now a national girl's color. It just became one. And we all just embrace the value as if it's the truth. I mean, I got made fun of the other way for wearing a paisley shirt with all my flowers. I love me some flowers. I'll wear a shirt with flowers on it all day. But I had some people, some dudes who wanted to say something about it. <laughs> we made the judgments on the whole thing. We made the judgments on the whole thing on bodies. On genders, on races, ethnicities, on behaviors, on desires. And we confuse these desires, bodies, races, and ethnicities with religious convictions. And we miss the image of God. So I'll say this. The theology of social evil at work in the world. Here's how I see it. Here's how I think Paul sees it. Wish I had enough time to unpack it more. But let's read it. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all because all sin. Guess what all of us inherited? Death. I made my own decisions. You can try. Ten out of ten doctors agree. Everybody going to die. Right? Like all of us. Death comes to all of us. Death comes to all of us. Sin comes to all of us. I made my own decisions. Yeah, but you inherited a whole lot of stuff. Just like I did. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, through one man, which Adam, death through sin in this way. So death comes from sin. So I just want to say this. Death comes through sin. Death is not of God. It is only appointed every man to die once, as Hebrews says, because sin came into the world. Death comes through sin. Death is not of God. That's why death is called the final enemy of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, to be abolished. Death is not of God. Death comes through a world that is given to the reign, which I'm giving it away, reign of sin and death. Death and sin reign. So, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, read it with me. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. That's a little important thing because you and I may go, well, I didn't do what Adam did. Well, I got to get what Adam got. Because that's how social evil works. That's how society works. That's actually how God made the world. Trees weren't meant to die. Plants weren't meant to die. People weren't meant to die. And all things die because the world is broken. How's the world broken? Not through personal individual sin. And that's what evangelicalism has taught some of us. That this is all because of our bad anti-God behaviors. But the cosmos broke. You with me? The cosmos. Not just our bodies. The cosmos broke. The world broke. Because there's a theology of social evil that we have to recapture. Yeah. 
so we can understand the theology of liberation of the reign of grace. Does that make sense? Death reigned through Adam and Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Let me say this again, too. We live in a society where we go, oh, that happened 400 years ago. My, my, I, didn't, I didn't do it. Well, I didn't do it. Adam did, but I've got to deal with the implications of it. Because that's how systems work. Say, that's how systems work. Say it. That's how systems work. That's how social systems work. Now, let me pause. There are three words that's the unholy trinity of social evil. The word transgression, iniquity, and sin. All used in your Hebrew Bibles, for those of you who study the Bible. The word transgression means violation of trust. That's literally what it means in the Hebrew tradition. It's a violation of trust. Iniquity means crooked behavior, which is where we get injustice. Sin does not mean missing the mark. That is a lame Empty Greek understanding of the word sin. The Hebrew understanding of the word sin, which is the understanding that Paul is writing from, using a different vocabulary, means a failure to fully love. So when we sin against God, we're sinning against God because we're failing to what? Fully love God. When we sin against our neighbor, we're failing to what? And what's the greatest command? To love God and to love neighbor. And that's our problem. So just keep that in mind when we talk about these things. Adam, uh, so Adam to Moses, even those who, died, those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression, he's a prototype of the coming one. Paul goes on. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more of the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. In other words, what Adam ushered into the world, Jesus ushered into the world something opposite too. You with me? So there's a new something going on. In the midst of the old something. Verse 16, and the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation, which is something we all got to deal with. But from many trespasses came the gift of resulting in justification, which, many, which all of us can deal with. And then he goes on to say, oh, rats. How do I go back? Oh, since by the one man's trespass, say it with me, death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness, say it with me, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Did I skip a verse? 17. Oh, you can read it in your Bibles. <laughs> Here's what it says. There's two reigns at work in the world. I say it all the time. There's the reign of what? Sin and death. And then there's the reign of what? Grace. And in the reign of sin and death, that's where all the things are broken. And it's a cosmological reality, the reign of sin and death. It's a cosmological reality. Yeah. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where death, sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace reigns. So that's why we don't just call it the reign of death, it's the reign of sin and death, and then there's the reign of grace. And the reign of sin and death is at work in the world, and Adam and Eve followed the serpent into this new reign that was breaking into the world, and humanity's been following ever since. Because what's the first thing we read about once Adam and Eve are following Satan into the reign of sin and death is we see two sons kill each other. You with me? We see the violence. And that's why it's called the reign of sin and death because it's working against the things of love, perpetuating the things of death. And things that work against the things of love and perpetuate death will always perpetuate death. So violence, 
betrayals, harms, traumas, all the isms, the idea of subordination and superiority of any form is of the reign of sin and death. It is not of the reign of grace because the reign of grace moves us toward baptismal identity where our, our identity markers that society leads us to believe are primary actually still hold, but they're just secondary to our primary marker of being a baptized child of God. For in Christ there's neither Jew or Greek, male and female, slave or free, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. The image of God in me that was marred by the reign of sin and death has been birthed, new life by the Holy Spirit of life. The Christ who's the breath in my lungs, giving me new life and a new understanding of how the world works. But the problem is, I've spent most of my life living according to the rules of the reign of sin and death. Right? Have we not? And then the social conventions that are at work in the world move me more closely into the reign of sin and death. The social conventions that are built upon the principles of the reign of sin and death. That create the enemy making machine of society and all the antagonisms that say it's us versus them. Now we're in a culture war. That's the language. It's hard to love the culture you're trying to kill. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has rescued us from the what? Domain. Domain. That's a political term in the Greek. It means, it means, it means just what it is. It's a political term. It's a sphere of rule. The domain of what? And transferred us into what? A different domain. The kingdom of the son he loved. We, we, were, we were formed by. We have been formed by. Matter of fact, you might say malformed by. This reign of sin and death. This domain of darkness. Same concept. Just different language for Paul. The word reign is a political term. The gospel is political. Remember that. It's the reign of sin and death. And we're put into this reign of the kingdom of God. So we're transferred from one politic, one politic, one way of governance. Everybody say governance. That's what politic is. It's a way of governance. A way of governance that's governed by sin and death. The things that make sin and death. We are moved from one governance into a totally different governance. So now Clay and I come out of the reign of sin and death. We come into the kingdom of grace. And now we're living our lives. And we're realizing that the way of Jesus in the reign of grace is actually contrary to the reign of sin and death. The reign of sin and death say make violence. The reign of grace says what? Make peace. The reign of sin and death says, have fear of your enemy. The reign of grace says, what? Love Love your enemy. But the problem is I'm so formed for fear of enemy, and I'm so formed for hate of enemy, because I've been more formed in the reign of sin and death than I have been formed in the reign of grace. And here's the problem. When churches don't have healthy theologies of social evil and a healthy kingdom theology, they will teach a gospel of, hey, Jesus saved you from your sins and you get to go to heaven when you die. So in the meantime, just be really good moral people. And we forget the sociological, the social implications of these things. And we can't make sense of this language because what we do is we spiritualize this language. And what's very interesting to me is there's nothing about the language that spiritualizes it. Colossians 2, talking about Christ, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out by the way of nailing it to the cross. Read the last line with me. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed them 
by, he would triumphant over them. So here's the thing. In Luke chapter 22, verse 53, it's in your notes. Jesus is standing before the political and religious leaders. And this is what he says. I didn't have a chance to say this in first service, so I want to make sure I say it now. He says this. Every day while I was, in, while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour. And the hour of the dominion of darkness. Come on now. That is a political, embodied, physical reality that Jesus points to. Because what put Jesus on a cross? A religious and political system. Oh, but God did. I hear what you're saying. But just what Jesus literally just said is this is your hour. I'm going to submit to your hour. Because I'm going to overcome it. And all the armament that you bring, all of your violence and your weapon of warfare and your state execution instrument called a cross and those nails and that hammer and that chastising and that crown of thorns and that spit and that fist that you're going to hit me with and those words you're going to bring to me, I'm going to disarm all that. Beloved, you, you are liberated. But the, but the, but the effect of the reign of sin and death still gets us. The fact that Jesus is Lord of all doesn't diminish the impact of the reign of sin and death at work in the world. Are you with me? But you are no longer held captive to it. You are liberated. That's why you don't ever hear me use the word saved. Because that word isn't strong enough. That English word saved is not strong enough for what the word means. It means liberated. Set free. That's much more than just I have my sins washed away. I get to go to heaven when I die. It means something about life gets to be different now. But here's the thing about the social conventions. I think Christians have to do a better job. We have to do a better job of making sure that we don't allow social conventions and social norms and, and those little things that may not in and of themselves be bad start becoming the lens to which we understand our faith right. and the way in which we impact the lives of others. Right. Because if these things get in the way of the image of God into the other, then it's not the image of God that we ourselves are living into. We're giving more authority to society than we are the Christ of our lives. Does that make sense? So the the great twisted irony of the evangelical church is that it gives more authority to culture because it allows wars to be created by culture somehow. Christians don't have to fight those wars, bro. We're called to one thing. Love. And love's got to look like something. Love looks like justice, it looks like mercy, it looks like compassion, it looks like kindness, it looks like goodness, it looks like listening, it looks like forgiveness, it looks like extending forgiveness, it looks like inclusion, it looks like equity, it looks like diversity, it looks like beauty and goodness. Scriptures point that out. But I just want to kind of close with this so we understand how this isn't spiritualized. Because we like to spiritualize this. We like to say, oh, it's, it's, it's the demonic realm. Okay, I'll, like, fine. Let it be the demonic realm. Then this is where the language is helpful. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not flesh against flesh and blood. Our battle is not what? It's not against flesh and blood. It's amazing how we make it that way, don't we? Really, and there's a different way of reading this. The battle is against the marred image of God inside of us and within ourselves. The battle is against me 
not loving you. The battle is against me, not welcoming you. The battle is against what? The rulers. Against what? Against what? Powers of the darkness. So that world, world, that Greek word means cosmos. It's a cosmological thing. Does that make sense? That's what I'm saying when I say a theology of social evil. It is a cosmos thing. It's against the principle, the cosmos, the powers of this darkness. Now, that word darkness, if you can't read that, is a noun in the Greek, and it references a physical sphere. It is not metaphysical. So you can't spiritualize what Paul isn't trying to spiritualize. That's why later on he says, oh, and against the what? Spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So Paul's including the spiritual, but Paul is including the institutional. He's including the systemic. He's including the physical manifestations of these things. Does that make sense? So if Clay and I are living according to the reign of sin and death, and we decide to start a company, we're going to build a company on the values and the morals of what? The reign of sin and death. And so the company is going to be built under policies and procedures and practices of the reign of sin and death. Clay and I decide that we leave. We leave the company. Guess what remains? Come on. Stay with me. What remains? The company. Which, which is, concludes what? The values and the morals and the practices and the policies that reflect what? But Clay and I get liberated. So we come over here and we build a new company. We build it upon the values and the morals and the principles of the reign of grace. And the values and the morals and the principles of the kingdom of God. And then we die. Sorry, Clay. So he and I go be with Jesus. And this company still exists. But then other people come in. And now we're in a tug of war. In the same way that there's a tug of war over here. But the fact is, social conventions and constructs and structures and values and morals are all transferred from one generation to another. Are you with me? Just like your manners. Just like your idea of the color pink and the color blue. All transferred from one generation to the other. And so here's the point. If we are going to say that you are made in the image of God, then it necessitates that I live my life in such a way toward you that honors that. What will not honor that is exclusion. Because you are made for what? Inclusion. What will not honor that is fear because you were made for love. What will not honor that are systems of subordination that keep you from full self-giving participation in the life of God. Does that make sense? There is nothing you have done and know where you have been that God has not been with you wanting to heal you and draw you into the fullness of the image of God in your life. You just have to decide who's going to be your Lord. And so do I. And the God of heaven and earth knows you best and loves you most and wants to liberate you from that loop that you find yourself in. That is violating the image of God inside of you. And that ends up causing you to violate the image of God inside of somebody else. And we Christians have to be more careful with what we name and how we name it. So that we don't get sucked into a political season of a whole bunch of rulemaking and ideological formations of social convention. And miss the image of God in the other. Does that make sense? Clear as mud. There's more to it. I invite you to come to Theology Thursday because we will unpack this in great detail. I got like 17 verses that we did not have time to get into today, and I'm really kind of not kidding. 
so you can open your app and you can find it. Because every time we come, every time we come to the table, guess what we are remembering? We are remembering the Christ who resets the image of God inside of us, the Christ who births us anew, the Christ who liberated us from having to fall into a never-ending trap of these things, the Christ who calls us unto his own self and liberates us into life in the kingdom of God. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.